Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Tell Us Plainly. It's based upon the lectionary readings for May 12, 2019. It's a late December day in Jerusalem. Jesus is walking in the portico of Solomon, an old and revered part of the temple, and as usual, he's drawing a crowd. This time, the people gathered around him have come to celebrate the Feast of the Dedication, better known to us as Hanukkah, a festival honoring the rededication of the temple after its defilement by the Syrian Greeks in 164 BCE. The people have come with a question. Perhaps they've heard one of Jesus' enigmatic parables, or witnessed one of his miracles, or maybe they just want to trap him into saying something they consider blasphemous. Whatever the motive, the question they pose is a zinger for the ages. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. As I read this gospel portion from our lectionary, I have two reactions. On the one hand, it feels odd to ask a question like this one so soon after Easter. Didn't we just celebrate the plainest, clearest, most irrefutable proof of Jesus' Messiahship possible? How can we still be in suspense after the resurrection? On the other hand, the question and its timing in our liturgical year feel spot on. It tells us the truth about how faith works, if we're honest enough to admit it. Most of the time, faith isn't a clean ascent from confusion to clarity, doubt to trust. It's a perpetual turning, a circle we trace from knowing to unknowing, from unbelief to belief, from Christ is risen to, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I used to consider this sort of circling a sin or a weakness, but I don't anymore. It's what we human beings do. It's real life. If you find yourself asking Jesus to speak plainly into the circumstances of your life on this fourth Sunday of Easter, then you're not alone. If something in you feels suspended, taut, impatient for Jesus to rise again one more time into the particulars of your comings and goings, your nights and days, then welcome to the way of authentic faith. This is how it works. I don't know about you, but for me, the question Jesus confronts in the temple really hits a nerve. It exposes all kinds of pain and yearning. These days, I do feel as if God is keeping me in suspense and wounding me with his silence. I can't count the number of times in the past few weeks I've started a prayer with the words of the people who approached him on that long-ago December day. If you are. If you are good. If you are powerful. If you are loving. If you are real. If you are the Messiah, then stop talking in riddles. Stop hiding when I long for your presence. Stop awakening in me holy hungers you won't satisfy. Show up, speak plainly, act decisively. Take this world of swirling, dubious gray and turn it black and white once and for all. How does Jesus respond? Well, not plainly, and not, at first glance anyway, kindly. I have told you and you do not believe he says, with a discernible impatience in his voice, and then the icy clincher. You do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. Ouch. I'll admit it, I've spent several days now wrestling with the harshness of that sentence. You do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. What can such a stark, cut-and-dry pronouncement mean? I suppose the easy dodge would be to assume that the sentence doesn't apply to me. After all, I'm a cradle believer, I grew up in the church, I know my Bible, I love the liturgy, and I say my prayers. Surely I both believe and belong. Except when I don't. The nagging trouble with Jesus' indictment is that it does apply to my spiritual experience, not rarely, but often. 
When I ask Jesus to stop keeping me in suspense, when I insist that he speak plainly, what I'm really saying is, I can't trust you. I trust neither your willingness to speak to me nor my capacity to hear your voice. You're supposed to be my good shepherd. I'm supposed to know your voice, but I very often don't. So what now? At first glance, Jesus' reply might appear to suggest that belonging to him depends on believing in him. But in fact, what Jesus says is exactly the opposite. You struggle to believe because you don't consent to belong. In other words, belief doesn't come first. It can't come first. Belonging does. And therein lies our hope and our consolation. According to this text, whatever, I, whatever belief I arrive at in this life will not come from the ups and downs of my own, my own emotional life. It will not come from a creed, a doctrine, or a cleverly worded sermon. Rather, it will come from the daily, hourly business of belonging to Jesus' flock, of walking in the footsteps of the shepherd, living in the company of fellow sheep, and listening in real time for the voice of the one whose classroom is rocky hills, hidden pastures, and deeply shadowed valleys. If I won't follow him into those layered places, places of both tranquility and treachery, trust and doubt, I will never belong to him at all. I wonder if Jesus resisted the crowd's question that day because it was so pitifully inadequate. What good would it have done if he stood up in the temple at their insistence and yelled, Yes, yes, in fact, I am the Christ? Would anything have changed? Suddenly, would his parables, his countercultural teachings, and his strange miracles have coalesced into a neat package his listeners could tuck under their arms and carry home? I doubt it. Jesus was a storytelling rabbi, far more interested in formation than in formula. Maybe, by refusing to speak plainly, Jesus was honoring human life for the incredibly complicated thing it is. After all, one doesn't speak plainly about the greatest mysteries of the universe. Jesus came to teach us about truth, about love, and about eternal life. One doesn't simply profess belief in such weighty and mysterious things. One lives into them, questions into them, believes into them, grows into them. One wrestles, and even in the wrestling, belongs. Living as we do on this side of the resurrection, we know that even the greatest miracle in human history was not enough to stop Jesus' followers from asking searing questions. Even the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb struggled to believe. Why should we, their heirs, be superior in any way? We are a wandering species, a wandering species, a species prone to stumbling all over ourselves. We are sheep, and our only hope is in the goodness of our ever-loving shepherd. I suspect that Jesus' answer was not what the people in the temple that day wanted to hear. They wanted to believe from the outside. They wanted a version of proof that would not require them to step into the smelly sheep pen and muck around with the other sheep. They wanted certainty without risk, truth without trust, a Messiah who would provide but not provoke. That kind of plain telling, Jesus said, is not available. The only knowing on offer is an incarnational knowing a knowing that happens within and among the fold. In a beautiful sermon entitled Message in the Stars, Frederick Buechner makes the point this way, it is not objective proof of God's existence that we want, but whether we use religious language for it or not, the experience of God's presence, that is the miracle that we are really after. And that is also, I think, the miracle that we really get. The sheep know their shepherd because they are his. They walk, graze, feed, and sleep in his shadow, beneath his rod and staff, within constant earshot of his voice. They believe because they have surrendered to his care, his authority, his leadership, and his guidance. There is no belonging from the outside. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Belong, Jesus says. 
Consent to belong. Belief will follow. For books this week, I review Erin McGraw's short story collection, Joy, and 52 other very short stories. A tired priest, an accidental murderer, an anxious mother, a rapist daughter. These are just a few of the characters Erin McGraw brings vividly to life in Joy, her stunning new collection of very short stories. In these 53 gems that demonstrate all the things a short story can do, McGraw moves deftly from the amusing to the heartbreaking, the mundane to the profound. In Hallelujah Day, a reluctant missionary contends with her mother's industrial strength faith. In Soup, McGraw explores the relationship between a woman dying of cancer, her husband, and a friend who assumes the role of caretaker. In Pebble, McGraw captures a young family's hope-filled rise and tragic fall in barely six pages. In Prayer, McGraw's character appeals directly to God as he struggles to resist an affair. Quote, because you promised to break and remake us when we go wrong, and because you have made us so that we don't want to be broken, and we often go wrong. Joy is not an easy or easily uplifting book. It's an honest, searing book that goes for the jugular. It succeeds because it honors the complexity of what it means to be human, to doubt, to trust, to lose, to lust, to hope, to hate, and to love. In prose, it leaps off the page for its precision and beauty, McGraw allows her characters to step out of themselves for a few brief moments and tell us who they are and where and why. Their voices invite us to laugh and cry, yearn and celebrate. In this, her fourth short story collection and seventh book, McGraw offers her readers a work of deep empathy and impressive artistry, her best yet. For movies this week, Dan reviews Roma. This black and dramatic memoir received 10 Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and four nominations for Alfonso Cuaron as the producer, writer, cinematographer, and editor. There are different ways to watch the film, but Cuaron makes his intentions clear at the end of the movie when, as the credits begin to roll, he dedicates it to Porolibo, that is, in loving memory of his real-life nanny, Laburia Rodriguez, who served his family when he was a little boy. The protagonist in the film is a Mixteco girl named Cleo, who, like many people from her indigenous background, has left her own family in the impoverished countryside to find a better life in the city. She is the live-in maid for a family of seven, seven in the Roma neighborhood of Mexico City, where Cruron grew up around 1970. On the one hand, because of her background, Cleo is a powerless person who is subject to socioeconomic forces far beyond her control. On the other hand, her life as a maid is a vast improvement, thanks to good money for reasonable work in a loving city family. Cleo is also a savior and hero. She loves the family's four children more than her own, but whether rich or poor, suffering often knocks at all of our doors. At about the same time in this movie, the two women, Cleo and her employer, the mother Sophia, both suffer bitter treatment by their men. No wonder the film includes scenes of an earthquake, hail, a forest fire, and a pounding ocean surf that will suck you right under. Dan watched this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, for poetry on this fourth Sunday of Easter, Via Negativa by R.S. Thomas. Why, no. I never thought other than that God is that great absence in our lives, the empty silence within, the place where we go seeking, not in hope to arrive or find. He keeps the interstices in our knowledge, the darkness between stars. His are the echoes we follow, the footsteps he has just left. 
We put our hands in his side, hoping to find it warm. We look at people and places as though he had looked at them too, but missed the reflection. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for May 12th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.